You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance." And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we... What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Well, I was, um, I was out last week. Nikki and I do this, um, this family camp uh, every year. We got back last night, and I, I'm, I have some observations, not hard data, but I have some observations about some things going on in the church in America, and I tested the waters with a few of those guys there. There were about uh, 12 other families with me and Nikki and our kids and husbands and wives and kids all running around, and I had a few of the guys with me, and they, they at least affirmed it, but let me just tell you and, and test it with you and see what you think. Um, this is what I'm seeing in America today, in American churches. Um, spoken or unspoken. We used to say we want to go to church to be challenged. Um, we want to be encouraged. We want to be uplifted. We want to be instructed, those kinds of things. We want to worship God, those things. And all those are still the same, and especially the word challenged. I, we used to want to be challenged, and I think we still want to be challenged. However, the nature of that challenge has become a little bit different in my view. Um, it used to be um, there's nothing off the table. 
It was everything is, uh, it says in Hebrews, everything is torn open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Meaning, um, my hands are open with every belief I have, every action that I would take, every thought that I think, God, you challenge me, change me, and I will change as deep as you want to go. Now, it seems like the church in America is saying this. Think about how divided we are as a nation, that there's a certain chunk of beliefs that we have that we say, I still want to be challenged, but don't challenge those. Like, these are sacred to me. Don't challenge these. These are some foundational ways that I understand things. I understand God. I see the world. Don't challenge those. You can challenge me by, um, by stretching me some in some of these other areas, by challenging me to do better in these other areas, but there are some things that are just off limits. And if you think about it, that's really, really dangerous and really not beneficial for any of us. To say some truths that we build the rest of our life on that may be out of sync with what God would have, then to just say, well, leave those and we'll talk about everything else just doesn't work. The loving thing to do is to just say, let's, let's talk about some of those underlying assumptions. Let's, let's talk about those things at the core. Let's talk about how we can become Christians with open palms to God and say, any, any position that I have about anything, um, any, any desire I have, any thought that I have, it is yours. Change me if I need to be changed. Do with me what you will. That's a healthy place for a Christian to be. And that's what we're going to see today uh, with John the Baptist. We're not going to get and dig deeply into some of those, but I, I want to expose that issue. And you'll see in the story of John the Baptist, you'll start to see this come out about really, really sort of hitting where it might hurt a little bit. Where we've got our hand clenched, John the Baptist is going to come up and try and pry our hand off it just a little bit, some things that we don't want to. Now, this is John the Baptist. Uh, on my board all week, I have had, it says, I, I kid you not, it says John the weirdo, because John's a weird guy. If you know what he wore, he wore this camel hair. He's eating these locusts. He's looking like, like Elijah did in the Old Testament. And then he's out like in the wilderness baptizing people and just proclaiming all these things was probably, um, was probably part of a, a sect that was a little bit withdrawn from society. So he really is. Like when you read him in the other gospels, you'll probably go, this guy's a little strange. And yet we're gonna see crowds of people like just start, start going to him and see the message that he gives them. The first few verses um, of uh, chapter three, all it does is it sets this in time and history. This is Luke who has done research that is saying, here's the timeline on this. Go, go check me on this. I'm not hiding anything on it. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. So he's starting to give leaders. He's starting to give um, regions. And then it says, and Herod being, and this is my favorite, I want to run for tetrarch someday. This is my favorite political office. Being tetrarch of Galilee. Wouldn't that be fun? Jim for tetrarch. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. A tetrarch is um, the first Herod had the kingdom, and it swelled so big they couldn't manage it. And so when he died, they broke it into four groups. And so they had tetrarchs, which means four, over each of those regions. So those are just the different guys that did it. Um, and uh, the message that John the Baptist is bringing is crucial. Look at what he says in verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He is the one the Old Testament says is we call the forerunner of the Messiah, of Jesus, the one who is supposed to say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
They are pointing to Jesus. This new covenant is starting, that God's Savior, God in the flesh, is now on earth. John is the one who is proclaiming that. And he says, he's baptizing people of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Repentance. Let me explain that. Repentance in the Old Testament especially was the idea of returning. The Old Testament, the Hebrew word is about returning. You think you got God's um, covenant people, the, the Hebrews, the Jews in the Old Testament. And so God has given the law and then they went over here. And so God says, no, 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 no. You need to return back to what you knew. That's the idea of repentance. In the New Testament, it's the word metanoia, and it means a a, a radical changing of your mind, meaning um, God's people, so so somebody lives this way, and then we understand the things of God, and we start to go, wow, he has saved me, there is a God, he's my God, I, I worship him, and so we have this whole new way of looking at life. It wouldn't make sense to say, and I still keep living this way. We're seeing the world through a completely different filter, completely different lens now. And so we see God differently. And this idea of repenting is saying all these things, I now hold them before God. And some I may not have been often, but a lot I probably was. And now I'm following the way of the Lord. This is the idea. When you see repentance, it's the idea of changing your mind from sin to being a follower of God. And it is always evidenced by actions. If you remember um, in the Old Testament, remember the story of Jonah? It's a cute little kid story about he's in the belly of the fish. The story of Jonah is God goes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh, the vile Ninevites, and tell them to repent or I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah goes, why would I want to go tell them to repent? I'm not going to bring that to them and then you'll just destroy them. That sounds better. And so he's supposed to go up this way by land. Instead, he goes this way by sea. He runs away from God, gets thrown overboard, belly of the fish, spits out in the land. He's supposed to go in and he's supposed to meet with the king, the leaders, and he's supposed to give this big message of repentance. And instead, he walks in just to kind of the outskirts. And um, he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Very, very short message. Like really what you're supposed to see is Jonah going, hey, 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. And then turning and walking off. He doesn't want them to get this message. What happens? The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and and sat in ashes. This is in the book of Jonah. This is the king publicly repenting. And Jonah's going, I thought I had a good plan where this wouldn't happen. But there's even more. Look at this. He issued, the king issued a proclamation, published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. They're fasting. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And listen to what happens next. In verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Their actions showed change of heart, and God responded. 
This is all throughout the Bible. You see, uh, we'll see in a few weeks, we'll see, or I don't know when, Zacchaeus, later on in the book of Luke, we'll see Zacchaeus, the little tax collector. He's my hero because all we know about him is he's a tax collector, but he's also really short. So I really like the guy. He's got to climb up in the tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And the Lord takes him, says, I'm going to your house, this tax collector's house. And he goes and he sits with him and he starts to challenge him. And Zacchaeus says, if I have wronged anybody, I'm gonna pay it back fourfold. He says, I believe in you and I'm going to turn and change. I'm going to repent. And what does he say? Salvation has come to this house today. That's what Jesus says. What about Peter? You're gonna deny me, Peter, Jesus says, in the most trying time of my life. No, I won't. Deny, deny, deny. And what happens? He repents, he turns, Christ restores him, and he goes on to be the most influential person in the early church and dies a martyr's death. That is some serious life change. Or Paul dragging Christians through the streets because they threatened his way of life, the Jewish way of life. And so he's dragging them through the streets. He hates the the followers of this new, the way. And what does he do? Writes most of our New Testament. God gets a hold of him, changes him. And Paul looks back and says, whoops, that that was wrong. I'm changing, I'm turning, and I'm following him. Um, Talking about this word repentance is difficult. No, that, that's a very churchy, judgy kind of sounding word. Let me just tell you, repentance, we'll see, is good for us. This is God's good way of healing our relationship with him. Let, let me get there. Let me show you what's happening. This is an Old Testament prophecy in verse four. It says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The context in Isaiah's day was that um, the, um, the Israelites were, were gonna be in this, um, this exile, this captivity in Babylon. And he is saying, God is going to pave and make a way that this little runt of a nation, Israel, with this huge empire, this Babylonian exile that they're in Babylon, that, um, that this exile, they are going to get out of there. In other words, you are enslaved right now and God is gonna do a work that makes absolutely no sense. No, it, there's no logic to it. There's no way that, that you could just, it would just happen naturally or by some man-made cause that they would have to look when they are freed and go, wow, God did that. That was the Old Testament context and Matthew, Mark, and Luke now apply this to what John the Baptist is doing about the Messiah that's coming. You are enslaved and you are captive to your sin, your pride, your selfishness, your arrogance. And what God can do is he can go in and he can change the heart of a human being that you might know him, that you might be so different, so changed from the captivity that you once were and the enslavement to your sin. He gives you a new heart and you look and go, (laughs) I couldn't have done this. God has set me free. John the Baptist is saying, a guy's coming that's gonna be able to do that. And then it says, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Some of you are looking at your Bibles. Don't look any farther for just a moment. Think about your job. If you're John the Baptist, okay, your job is to proclaim Jesus on the scene. All that stuff I just said, people are enslaved to their sin. Now there's freedom in Christ. That's what he's supposed to do. He is supposed to point to the Messiah. And now he's out baptizing. The time is upon us and crowds are there. What would you say? What do churches say? 
What do churches say when we know that there's people, there's probably some here today, that don't really speak Christianese, so to speak, maybe don't know the Bible, don't know Christ. What, 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 do, we, what, what do churches do? Well, sometimes we just, we want the crowd, and then you get the crowd, and you go, I don't want to make the crowd angry. And so the number of things that are in the Bible say is this big, and you go, these things are not going to sit real nicely, so let's, let's, just, well, let's just do this. Let's talk about less. Let's, let's talk about, you know, hey, Jesus loves you, has a good plan for your life. If you believe in him, you get to go to heaven someday. Let's just, let's, let's lob, let, let's talk about all the wonderful things. Or, or think honestly, like personally, you've got somebody in your life and you've built relationships and maybe they don't know the Lord and they need to know the love of God, but the only way to do that is to understand that they need a savior and that's not a fun conversation to have. And so what, what can we do? Just kind of, maybe I shouldn't say anything about that because what if they, what if they leave? And I really want them close. What does John the Baptist do when the crowd comes? Here's his, I also wrote on my board, I said, John, John the bad megachurch pastor and um, John the bad marketer. Listen to what he says. He said to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? How about that for a marketing strategy? We're gonna start having our greeters as you walk in to go, hello, brood of vipers, and shake your hand, you know, all our snake guests that we have here today. Thank you for being here. Like this is not, and when we even think about this, we think of vipers and we go snakes, they're gross, they're ugly, they're dangerous. In the Greco-Roman world, when they thought of vipers, do you know what vipers did? Looking for kids, we're okay. Listen to what vipers did. The viper would have a baby or a bunch of babies and then the mom would have to try and get out of there because the vipers would devour the mom. That's how they would have thought of this. This is about as low of an insult as you can possibly give somebody. And John's going, oh, everybody's listening. <clears throat> Hello, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? In other words, these very religious people are now there presenting themselves. They have no internal change, which is what this is supposed to be a symbol of, what baptism is supposed to be a symbol of. They're just looking in this cultural um, Jewish world, or we'd say cultural Christianity now, to go, what do we do? Oh, we should get baptized. That's the next religious thing we're doing. My heart is far from God, but that's something that I guess I should just do. Everybody's going to be watching? Cool. And then go out there to be baptized. And John goes, nah, you're not fooling anybody. He talks about not just what's inside, but what's outside. It says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I mentioned earlier, if your mind changes your behavior, your actions change as well. And then he says, don't just rely on your heritage. Don't, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't say, hey, we're Jewish. We've been doing this stuff for a while. We're good. We're very righteous. We're very religious. He's going, hang on. There's a new thing coming. Don't rely on your ancestry. You rely on your faith that manifests itself through fruit, through good works. And look at verse nine, and don't miss the hope that he has in verse nine. Even now, John the Baptist says, the ax is laid to the root of the trees, meaning the tree's still planted. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I, when I've read this before, I get the imagery that they're walking through a forest and there's some great trees with fruit. Those are people who are genuine followers of God that, that are demonstrating it. And then there's fake followers of God and it's people that are, and it's like the dead tree that's laying over here and someone goes by and gets it and just, and burns them and chunks them in the fire. That's the imagery that I have, but that's not what he's saying. 
You've got the trees bearing fruit, and then he's saying you have some that are not bearing fruit. And, and it carries the idea, picture it like this, this wood, wood chopper, lumberjack, lumberjack, there you go, lumberjack, uh, comes up, and he's like hit the tree a few times, and now it's, it's kind of pared back a little bit, and he's coming back for one more blow to strike at, it says, the root. It says the axe is laid at the root. It's right there, and one more, whack, and that thing is going to tip. But he says it hasn't happened yet, but that's what's coming in Christ, is what John the Baptist is trying to say. He's trying to say Christ is coming, and you're going to take your life and put it up against his, and that is not going to go well, you have faith in God's Messiah that's about to be on the scene. Let me just say for us, it is never too late to repent and turn to God. The crowds asked him the very logical question, what then shall we do? That would kind of make sense. All this, some are burned in the fire, some are bearing good fruit. What do we do? And here's what he says. He talks to three different groups of people. He talks to wealthier people at first, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, this is not, let me say this. When I was in, when I was in Texas, I, we were moving to Colorado, and I was not going to get like seat warmers on my, on my car. We were buying a new car. I wasn't going to get seat warmers. My wife told me to. She's a genius. Um, I didn't have any puffy coats because we lived in Dallas and it's cold like a day and we just go, we'll just stay inside and kind of, you know, wait this one out and that's it. I had no puffy coats. Now I have probably six in my closet, okay? Um, and like, I remember first we got here, we saw some friends. I was like, oh my gosh, look at all the stuff. And then I'm here now and now I'm, I'm, I'm a Coloradan, I think. I have a bunch of puffies. So um, uh, what he's not talking about here is what I'm, is this. He's not talking about me going, um, I've got six already. I really should just throw one out anyway. Or maybe I could just donate it. Yeah, I'll just donate it instead of throw it out. And I'll take it and I'll give it to somebody and then they'll donate it to someone in need. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you have two. You give one to somebody else that has none. This is hard. For wealthy people that he's talking to, people, wait, but I've earned this. This is my stuff. And he says, nope, the way you show that you're a follower of God is you are gracious towards, in this case, the poor. This is why the, the greatest influence over the, uh, with the poor in the history of the world is emphatically the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Christians tend to give way more generously with their money. We give sacrificially with what we have so that others might know the Lord. If we don't have food, Christians donate and give food. Coats, we give coats. That's the history of the, of the Christian church. But what he's doing here is saying, in your culture, if you got two tunics, yeah, keep both tunics. The poor person, forget about them. They're not important in their culture. Culture is saying it's perfectly acceptable. And John says, nope, not if you're following God. There's another group he addresses. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. You may know a little bit about tax collecting where you have this huge Roman empire and it was broken up into different chunks called different things over the, over the time that it was an empire. And um, tax collectors would go to Rome and they would say, I'd like to collect taxes in whatever this area here, and we will pay you a million dollars or whatever it is, Roman dollars, a year, a million dollars, and I'll collect taxes. And people would bid to be able to collect taxes. 
And Rome would look at all their offers and say, sounds good, sounds good, sounds good. And they would award all the different regions to different tax collectors. Well, as you can imagine, if Rome got its million dollars, that's what they cared about. And they wanted the tax collectors to be happy. So these tax collectors would generally bring soldiers with them and go in and way, way overcharge them. Well, when Rome gets word of this, then obviously now this isn't a million dollars, this is a million two, which means you've got to go extort even more money from them. And you can see the the process of what happens. So what does he say to the tax collectors? Perfectly acceptable culturally to do what you're doing. That is just the way of the world. He says, not for followers of God. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the third group is there's soldiers there. Soldiers asked, well, and we, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. They're the muscle a lot of times with these tax collectors. And he's saying, perfectly acceptable in your culture to do that. Not if you're a follower of God. And so what's he doing? He is saying the culture is screaming this, and so it's very acceptable, but you know better, this is not okay. He's kind of hitting them where it hurts. Well, not kind of, he is. You're extorting money from people, stop it. Be content with your wages, you're not, stop it. You're doing evil things, stop it. You're ignoring the poor, stop it. All the things that we would go, ugh, really? But the culture is just saying it is perfectly fine to do that. So the question that we ought to be asking is what if we were there? What if the church in America was out there and John the weirdo's out there and he's doing his thing and he just said, he called us a brood of vipers and we walk up and go, what should we do? What are the issues where the church in America has called good, evil, and evil good? What are the things that he would go, boom, and just give us a little bit of a gut punch? The places where the culture says it is perfectly acceptable. In fact, this is good and right. And you Christians are antiquated and wrong. What are those things? Well, let me, <clears throat> let me give you my favorite C.S. Lewis term because I have to tell you about two influences that we have going uh, for us today. The first one is actually where um, C.S. Lewis came to faith because uh, someone, he was talking with someone and, uh, and he was basically talking about the Bible. And he said, the Bible was nice. It was neat back for that time. Now we know better. Now we have better education. You know, he's a Westerner and this was an Eastern thing. And so now we know better. And the man led him to faith in Christ by using a term that is my favorite term. And it is generational snobbery. He says, C.S. Lewis, and that's a good British term too. You have generational snobbery, meaning you look at where you are and think my generation has it right generations before, well, they don't. And I'm going to add to it, and I would argue that we also have something called geographical snobbery. Well, we're in America, and so obviously we're the most brilliant people in the world. We know what's right. The rest of the world will catch up to us at some point. Let me give you a couple instances of this. Let's start with geographical snobbery. There's um, two airports in Dallas. You have um, DFW and then Love Field is smaller. When they put in Love Field, they were worried that it was going to take from DFW Airport. So they had the right amendment was, uh, sorry, uh, the the right amendment was in place where it said that Southwest mainly, but there were a couple others that flew there, could only fly to the states that touched Texas. And so basically, you'd fly to like Oklahoma and then catch a plane somewhere else, but that was, that was part of the deal. And then the right amendment was expiring, and so they said, 
Um, so now Southwest was getting ready to fly international. And they were going to a um, particular airport in Mexico, and we actually got to know the lady who was in charge of this, and she's absolutely brilliant. And um, she was telling us about this. She actually went to the church we went to. It was in our Sunday school class. And uh, she was explaining the frustration that Southwest Airlines wasn't going to get any gates at this airport. And in the, in the airline industry, gates are everything. You want to guess just the right amount so you can fill them and you can just generate revenue, 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 revenue. You got to get gates. And they couldn't get it. And they couldn't figure out why. And so she was talking with us and giving her, I don't understand any other airport we go to. People are like, yay, Southwest. And they, they want us there. And then she was finding some of her colleagues at American and Delta and some of the other American airlines weren't getting it. And then she found out they were going, why are all these little international airlines getting all these gates that we should have? And she figured it out. Bribery. That's how it worked. So now I'm talking with this brilliant, this Christian woman who is trying to figure out It works by bribery in their country. In our country, we don't do that. And so we're sitting there talking. She says, what do you think I should do? Yeah, it's good. I'm an expert in this kind of stuff, I guess. I said, I don't know. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, we go, well, bribery. Well, obviously that's wrong. You You ever been trying to win business and wined and dined somebody? taking them to a Broncos game, taking them to a um, golf course, taking them out to a really nice meal, put them up in a five-star hotel. Like the principle behind bribery is, well, if you bribe somebody, then it's just going to be the wealthier, just going to get wealthier. Well, it's sort of the same principle to some degree, but in our culture, we go, well, that's just kind of, that's just normal. And here we go, oh, that's not normal. You shouldn't do that. Who's right? Seems a little muddled and gray, if you ask me. If, if we live our lives based on we now know in where we live, the problem is that's always going to be changing. Let me give you an example. I was in Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas City with my daughter. We went to Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, this way to you. Kansas City, Missouri. And we went up and said, and we were like, do we need to wear masks? And they were like, well, yeah, you need to wear masks. Don't you care about people? You need to put your masks on. We wear masks everywhere, you know, pushing babies with masks, whatever. And so that's like Missouri where we were. And then we, um, went, we went and grabbed another bite and we were in Kansas City, Kansas, from here to here. And uh, we went up and said, hey, do we wear masks? And the lady literally laughed out loud at us that we were thinking about wearing masks. Here, you must. Here, you must not. Think about that. If, if we are so taken by an, our American mindset, we now know there's other nations in the world. There's other states besides just Colorado. You can go someplace in the world, in, in the states, and go, here it's wrong and reprehensible, and here it's considered a virtue. And if we are going to just live our lives based on, well, we now know because of where we are, it is just going to be a constant moving target instead of coming back to the word of God. Um, Some of the churches in America right now are going off the rails. Do you know why they're not able to on an international level? Is because the church in Africa looks at the church in America and goes, what are you doing? Are we reading the same Bible or not? Geographical snobbery. Who's right? Well, We are, because, you know, America. All right. 
The other one is generational snobbery. This, this is another thing we suffer from. If we lived in the first century, would we be Pharisees that ignore the poor? Gosh, I hope not. There's stories of Pharisees with um, <clears throat> the poor coming to them and they would grab handfuls of the cheapest coins they could and they would hurl them out to this big dung heap by the city, throw them down there so the poor would go and crawl through the manure to find these little coins. And then they were so gross, they wouldn't come back up to be around people. Human beings that said they were followers of God actually did that. If we lived then, would we do that? What do we do? Oh, no, we know better now. That would never be us. Gosh, I hope not. If you lived in America a couple hundred years ago, would you have owned slaves? I mean, the thought just makes my stomach turn. Perfectly acceptable in the culture. Christians did it. How? You don't have to read very far in your Bible to know that that's wrong. How'd that happen? I'd like to go, well, no way. I wouldn't do that. I know better now. Gosh, I hope I wouldn't. You think any Christian men have ever made inappropriate sexual advances on women in the workplace? I'm sure they have. Why? Well, everybody does. It's just kind of the way of the world. It's kind of what you do. I appreciate Willow Creek um, that uh, <clears throat> had this big seeker model of a church. And uh, they did bunch. Of, they they, um, they had this huge model. It's this church in out by Chicago. It just blew up, and it's thousands and thousands of people. Bill Hybels was a pastor for a while, and um, just and they would do conferences, and they would teach people. Here's how you reach lost people, so you can make disciples. And then they came out with some research that said, "Whoops, it doesn't work." And so they came out and they said, "Stop doing everything we told you to do." All the books we wrote, quit reading them. Don't come to our conferences anymore. They came out and apologized for it, which I appreciate. But there's some churches that are still going, yeah, 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 yeah. We're still using that method. We're not making disciples. We're building a crowd. How do you think that that is going to play out in generations to come? If people grow up with a shallow understanding of church. What happened? Because we have a, um, a generation that was really squeamish to talk about sex with our kids, with their children. How about the um, generation uh, that generations past that have really aligned church with politics and political parties? How's that working out for us? But in your day and age, we can, oh, we're in America. It's 2021, so we know. I've been wondering about, I don't like saying this one because it makes me accountable. Does Christian media consumption look like everyone else's? Like, will future generations go, you Christians watch this trash that Hollywood looked at and then said, oh, everybody's watching it. Let's make more just like it. And now generations after us, that's what's getting pumped out into the culture. The big question is, what are the big things that we are espousing now that because it's 2021 and because we live in America, we think we are right? I guarantee we are doing something things and doing some things in absolute folly that future generations are going to look back and go, what were you thinking? I'll tell you a big one for me. I pictured my, um, Lord willing, I get to have grandkids. I pictured my grandkid one day when, when coronavirus was going on, um, asking, hey, dad, so this, this coronavirus thing that, um, you know, when all the statistics are out, you look at the, the small percentage of people that, that died from it, not the percentage, not small number of people. People were hurting. People were dying. They were losing loved ones. What did the church do? I couldn't bring myself to just go, we just kept our doors closed for 
nine months, 12 months. That's when the church should shine the brightest. And when you start looking at how would the next generation view what we are doing, it starts to give good perspective. As people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with fire, his winnowing forks in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He says this is good news. Let me give you just a couple quick observations. Number one, um, this is good news. The idea of repenting and turning to God and overcoming our cultural blinders is good. We are not enslaved to the time in which we live, and we're not enslaved to the, the group think in the place in which we live. This is liberating. Number two, the beauty of repentance means that there's some place to go with our shame and with our sin. Otherwise, we just walk around carrying it. But the whole idea of repentance is that we are able to confess and then turn to Jesus Christ, the one who never had to repent in his entire life because he was without sin. And every time he is there with arms open wide, welcoming us back to him. Repentance is a good, healthy, right thing. Let me close with this. <clears throat> There's a story about um, Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia. He visited a prison and talked with all the inmates, and there were endless tales of innocence, misunderstood motives, and exploitation. Everybody was making their excuses and saying they were innocent. And then finally, he goes to the cell of a convict who is very silent. Well, he said, I suppose you're an innocent victim too. No, sir, I'm not, replied the man. I'm guilty and deserve my punishment. The king turned to the warden and he said, here, release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people in here. <laughs> Confessing is good and Christ alone can set us free. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is saying, I'm through. I'm done. Let's pray.